guardian angels and patron saints, pray for us. Our first reading today provokes a natural question. What is the Lord saying to us in this present time? As together we, we imitate the prophet Samuel at the direction of the priest Eli. Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. I myself asked that question. I've been pondering and praying about this actually for some time. I've been doing so particularly in light of the, the many controversies that we're seeing rise to a fever pitch in our society. And as I've been paying attention to that, certain patterns have emerged both in the world around me and in myself. I've had to confront certain tendencies in myself. And in order to address those tendencies, which incline me towards sinful behavior, sinful conduct, I've had to eliminate influences in my life that incline me away from virtue and towards vice and, and evil. So one of those patterns is something that I would like to name, something that I'm seeing in the world around me and impacting my own life. And I'd like to offer a little guidance, some reflection, and share with you some of the things that, that I've concluded about how I need to change. And so the spirit that I'd like to talk about today is the spirit of rash judgment. To judge rashly is to have in ourselves the habit of judging others critically. And the reason I think we need to be very careful about this is that it's everywhere. It's everywhere, most especially in the media. We tend to find things that we agree with politically and that reflect unfavorably on those we disagree with, politically or otherwise. I find that we seem to be ready to find the worst in one another, to believe the worst about one another. There even seems to be a spirit of perverse delight in seeing the behavior of others in the worst possible light. And this is easy to do especially when we're dealing with things that we're watching or listening to in the media, because these people are far away. They're not part of my life. They're strangers. They have no real connection to me. And I think we do experience some relief, some catharsis by reviling our opponents and our enemies from a safe distance. Safe distance. But I believe this interacts in an interesting and maybe detrimental way with our personal lives. That may feel like a, an unimportant failing. Yeah, I do that, I'm guilty. But it begins then to creep into other parts of my life. It becomes a habit and eventually becomes a personal sin. The sin of rash judgment. To be guilty of the sin of rash judgment, the catechism defines that as to assume as true, without sufficient foundation, the moral fault of someone else. Now, this is our inclination. This is natural to us. The scriptures are full of examples of how, in our weakened, 
fallen nature, we incline more naturally to a critical, rash judgment than to a proper one. One great example of this actually shows up in the scriptures um, that we refer to today. The prophet Eli, or the priest Eli, when Hannah, who is the mother of the prophet Samuel, whose story is being told in the first reading today, she came to the temple before she had Samuel. She had never had a child. She came begging, praying to God for a child. And Eli the priest was sitting at the seat by the door of the temple there in Jerusalem. And he sees this woman who's, who's deeply distressed. She's praying and weeping for a child, right? And Eli makes a judgment. He's watching her pray. He's watching her mouth move. And she's speaking to God in her heart, and she's not saying the words out loud. And so he thinks she's drunk. And he rebukes her harshly. He sends her away. Get out of here. Get out of here, you drunk woman. Get back to your wine. And Hannah answers patiently, No, my Lord, in fact, I am a, a woman who's sorely troubled. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I've, I've been pouring my soul out to the Lord. Eli made a rash judgment, right? It was small. It was small, but as we know, little things, when they're left unchecked, become habitual and then become very quickly big things. Like the pile of papers on my desk that I haven't been dealing with. Like the fast food wrappers in the back seat of the car, right? Like all the other things that pile up in our lives that seem minor at the time, but very quickly become unmanageable. So there's a progression here that I'd like to talk about a little bit. How rash judgment slowly takes hold of us and starts to really influence the way we see and treat other people. First, we begin with a criticism, searching for negative qualities in other people. Then we begin to criticize the actions or the, the words of other people. And then the third and final step is that we criticize the motives of other people. We find fault with their motives. So let's break those down. First criticizing qualities then actions, and then motives. We begin in a spirit of rash judgment when we start looking for and searching and noticing all the negative qualities of people around us. This is a, a steady but a subtle process of selective awareness. I'm easily overlooking or minimizing someone's good qualities while searching for and magnifying their bad ones. And then, what do you know? We think, yeah, actually, I was right. I did find some bad things about that person. One critical judgment goes in search of another and feeds on it. And then goes in search of another and feeds on it and grows and grows and grows. He's too fat. She's too skinny. I don't like the way that, he, that guy carries himself. I don't know what's going on with her, but, man, she seems really cranky lately. 
Whatever that is, I start to notice that and begin to lock in on it. And I'm saying, that's not good. Something's wrong with that person. Pretty soon, I'm writing people off in my mind. What a lonely place to be that is. Then, I progress into judging people critically for their actions. I start moving from their general qualities and I start interpreting in a certain light things that they do. Let me give you an example in my own life, something that happened not too long ago, right here in this church. I was preaching a homily one Sunday. And there's a gentleman who uh, was looking at his cell phone during the homily. Now, I know, I know you think that I can't see you, but I can. <laughs> We're so used to watching TV, sometimes it feels like, oh, well, I'm just here taking it all in. This, I can usually tell when people are looking at their cell phones, like looking down more than up. But this was quite, this was quite obvious. His phone was up here, up above the pew. And I noticed this out of the corner of my eye, and that's a little distracting. You know, when I notice that, I think to myself, wow, is this homily really that bad? Or what ga- what's the game on right now that you got to be checking the score right now? What am I missing? And I had a little bit of a negative judgment there. Well, I focused on finishing the homily and moved on and finished the Mass. Well, afterwards, this couple comes up to me, and they said, Father, just wanted to let you know, um, we've got this app that takes spoken words and then translates them right into nice, very easily legible text for us to read along. You see, he's got some severe hearing loss and hasn't been able to hear the homilies. So we found this app. Isn't that cool? And hey, guess what? It even works for Father Bayou. So that story had a happy ending. But what if, as this man had come out of, the, out of the back of church, as I was greeting people afterwards, and I beat him to the punch, and I said to him as he came out, uh, don't you realize how distracting and disrespectful it is to be looking at your cell phone during my homily? That would not, that would not have been a good way to respond to that situation. That would have been a rash judgment on someone's actions that assumed he was acting and doing something a certain way without actually knowing that to be the case. That's the next step in the progression of rash judgment. First judging qualities and then critiquing actions. But then we progress to yet another more intense level of rash judgment in which we begin to judge critically other people's motives. In other words, we claim knowledge of people's hearts. We claim the ability to be able to look in and understand them from the inside, and we don't like what we see. But of course, we can't do this. That's presumptuous. Only God, only God can see the heart. We always judge by external things. Only God can see the heart. And so to judge another's motive without sufficient reason, without the facts, 
is to claim godlike authority over that person. All he cares about is money. She likes to go first so she can impress everyone. She's a show off. Those people are too proud to listen to advice. I know what needs to happen, but they won't listen. What she really wants to do is force us out of our group. He's doing this to annoy me. She's doing this to embarrass me in front of my friends. Whatever it is, right? We've now stepped into a place of judgment over someone's heart. Now, this brings up a very clear, urgent question. What's the positive thing that we have to strive for in, in order to avoid making rash judgments? Well, first of all, it's important to realize this doesn't mean we ought not ever make judgments at all. We have to judge people's qualities and actions and motives. But the goal is, as long as there's a charitable or favorable interpretation on those things, our Christian duty is to choose that over the negative. Jesus commands us in his Sermon on the Mount, judge not. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And the measure you give will be the measure you get. Hear the word of the Lord. Speak, Lord, your servant's listening. Open our hearts to receive this word. Open our hearts to receive it in obedience. Now, we understand this in a particular way. Jesus says, do not judge. But we know that he doesn't mean never make any judgment whatsoever. He doesn't say refuse to distinguish between right and wrong. He doesn't say refuse to distinguish between truth and error. He says, do not judge rashly. The Catechism articulates it this way. Our respect for one another forbids any attitude or word likely to cause them an unjust injury. And a person becomes guilty of rash judgment who assumes as true without sufficient foundation, the moral fault of a neighbor. So the path forward is that, not that we be non-judgmental, which means making no judgments whatsoever, but that we make charitable judgments, and we make those habitually. It means don't give in to your inclination to make these judgments in a critical sense looking for others' faults, and without valid or sufficient reason, forming an unfavorable opinion of them in their qualities, in their actions, or in their motives. Instead of searching for and assuming the worst in others, Jesus is commanding us, search for and assume the best in others. We must be careful and deliberate to interpret insofar as it's possible our neighbor's motives, actions, and qualities in a favorable way. Now, this isn't just something that we ought to do in order to be nice. It's not optional behavior for the Christian. 
Jesus commands it. He commands it because this is how we become like God. This is how we show God our appreciation for how he treats us. We're grateful for the way in which God has overlooked our faults and seen the best in us rather than in the worst. Seeing in us the obedience of his son rather than the disobedience of his unfaithful people. And so every act of charitable judgment for another person is a Christocentric act. It's focused on Jesus, and it reveals Jesus. It reveals the mercy of God. This is nothing more than the golden rule, is, is it? And everything, do to others which you have, would have them do to you. And this sums up the law and the prophets. How do you want others to judge you? We have to judge one. We have to make judgments. Are you trustworthy? Right? Can I take your word? Take you at your word? Do you keep your promises? Are you faithful to your commitments? Right? We have to make those judgments. How do I want people to make those judgments about me? Do, they, do I want them to believe good about me instead of evil? Do I want others to interpret my actions in the best rather than the worst possible way? Do I want others to really understand or try to understand my side of the story before drawing conclusions or before talking about me to others? If so, then that's what I have to do to others. We're not called to suspend our critical thinking. We're not called to make judgments that are contrary to clear facts. If I hear someone that says something that is clearly false, clearly supporting something that is evil or commits an evil action, and I have firsthand knowledge of that, or they've disclosed to me their motives, they've told me why they do something, then I can make a judgment. The sin is not judgment per se, but rash judgment, habitually critical judgment. And if in such a situation we we do legitimately encounter something that needs to be changed, needs to be confronted, well, I can do so. But I can do so not with a spirit of accusation, but tentatively. Instead of saying, why are you looking at your cell phone during my homily? (laughs) Right? Why did you tell everyone that, that, why did you lie to everyone about why I wasn't at that meeting last night? We can say, Maybe I misunderstood the situation, so please correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounded like you you think I deliberately missed that meeting and accused me of doing so. We give people a chance to explain themselves. Maybe we've misunderstood the situation, in which case a reasonable explanation will lay it to rest and we can move on. But if not, maybe there is something here that needs to be changed. And now I give this person a chance to face up to what may be a harmful action and to change. I want to extend to others the same benefits that I want to be extended to me. I believe that those of us who are followers of Jesus, if we put this into practice, if we do this in our daily lives, at home, if we do this at work, if we do this at church, if we do this behind the wheel, our lives will be better. Our society will be a much better place to live in. And it will be easier and more pleasing to strive for holiness. We will be more affectionate. 
more trusting, more trustworthy, more joyful. This is what we call a Christian culture in which we strive to be kind, aware that everyone is fighting a hard battle. The costs of not putting this into practice in our daily lives, well, we see those all too clearly, do we not? If we don't silence the voices in our lives and the influences that are pushing us towards rash judgment, well, we get what we ask for. And the letter to Timothy described it 2,000 years ago. If we don't put this into practice, we become dominated by people with a morbid craving for controversy and for disputes about words which produce envy and dissension and slander, base suspicions and wrangling among people who are depraved in mind and bereft of the truth. That's what happens. I'll end with just a saying that I found very motivating, almost a kind of motto that I've taken as a theme for my life. It's from a homily of St. Augustine 1,600 years ago. He says, even back then, people keep talking about how bad things are, how we live in hard times, how we live in troublesome times. But let our lives be good And the times will be good. We make our times. Such as we are, such are the times. Together then, as God's covenant people, his priestly people, his holy people, let's cry out, united in heart and mind. Here I am, Lord. I live to do your will. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.